0: You're tuned to 103.7 WPVMLP in Asheville. And this is the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour. I'm Katherine Campbell.
1: And I'm Jonathan Ammons. And this is Peter Broderick.
2: Everybody seems so sad And it's making me heavy So if there's notes you hear on a piano That's the sound of me Trying to push it off of my head Yes, everything is above me I ain't standing on the ground If there's a dirt beneath my feet It's the dirt of the ages Passed down infinitely There is something we're all stuck with And I have tried to point it out But no one likes the guy who points from the sideline I've been on the sideline a while Watching myself play the field Ever since the rain came down The field's been all muddy And everybody's playing like shit All we need is a little sunshine Come on, I thought the world was getting warmer Out here it's cold and wet Like the bottom of the ocean With its pressure squeezing our heads But no one likes the guy who points from the side.
3: I wasn't in Haifa, I wasn't in the north of Israel. I don't know what that was like. I was in Beirut. In the few years since I've started a travel world, I'd found myself changing. The cramped, cynical worldview of a man who'd only seen life through the narrow prism of the restaurant kitchen had altered. I'd been so many places, I'd met so many people from wildly divergent backgrounds, countries and cultures. Everywhere I'd been, I'd, I'd been, as in Beirut, treated so well. I'd been the recipient of so many random acts of kindness from strangers. And I'd begun to think that no matter where I went or who I sat down with, that food and a few drinks seemed always to bring people together. That this planet was filled with basically good and decent people doing the best they could, if frequently under difficult circumstances. That the human animal was perhaps a better and nicer species than I'd once thought. I'd begun to believe that the dinner table was the great leveler, where people from opposite sides of the world could always sit down and talk and eat and drink, and if not solve all the world's problems, at least find for a time common ground. Now, I'm not so sure. Maybe the world's not like that at all. Maybe in the real world, the one without cameras and happy food and travel shows, everybody, the good and the bad together, are all crushed under the same terrible wheel. I hope, I really hope, I'm wrong about that.
1: He was a cook. He barely considered himself a chef and he certainly wouldn't call himself a journalist. But there, in Beirut, watching planes pass overhead, dropping bombs on neighborhoods he and his crew had just spent the last week getting to know and filming, a lot changed for him. A lot changed when he found himself in Namibia, Iran, Mexico, Laos, or Myanmar. And he showed us those changes. And he showed us how those understandings, those revelations, hurt how they reflected on us as a civilization. He wasn't blaming us, but he was accounting for our behavior. On the morning of June 8th, when his best friend, Chef Eric Repair, found him hanging lifeless in his hotel room in Kaiserberg, France, Anthony Bourdain had sealed his own legacy. I honestly don't know if I would have my career without Tony. All of us here at Dirty Spoon have been deeply influenced by his work, but I don't know if I would have ever thought to write about food and booze for a living if not for him. If I hadn't seen an episode of A Cook's Tour when I was in college and bought the book and found it to be one of the best memoirs I'd ever stumbled upon I really don't know what I'd be doing right now. But it was Bourdain that clued me in seeing some punk jackass in a Ramones t-shirt cruising down the Mekong River, stopping to eat some noodles while making casual comments on the scene. It opened up a whole new understanding of foreign cultures to ignorant little like me. It really made you understand that with a little bit of speculation, a lot of openness to adventure, and the willingness to just listen, the world could be much bigger than you ever knew. The best part was watching him grow from a cocky, arrogant old guy in Kitchen Confidential. He found himself on boats, planes, trains, and in sticky situations on a cook's tour before landing his shows on Travel Channel and then CNN. And through all of it, we saw a 40-year-old punk turn into one of the most thoughtful, tender, and open human beings on Earth. His focus went from seeking out good food to seeking out deep culture, In the faded wakes of M.F.K. Fisher, Bourdain took that same mantle and folkloric narrative of a food writer at the dinner table to plunge headlong into politics, morality, philosophy, and tradition. He used journalists' techniques to make something very different from journalism.
2: Was that your most dangerous trip, Congo?
3: Probably. Uh, I mean, we shot in post-Benghazi Libya, in wartime Beirut, uh, in Iraq. Uh, But I think... you know congo is a place where everything's fine until it's not and that that can happen really really quickly to some extent do you feel that you're carrying the burden of television news and oh no. and foreign correspondence no i feel really 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 lucky given the way things are and the pressures that are clearly on every news organization as far as you know yeah. h- how many bureaus they can maintain and what 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 stories people are willing to watch because they're clearly Give it a choice between a Kardashian and a story in Congo. Everyone's going to go with a Kardashian every time. Yeah. Um, what I do is I'm telling stories in places about people that, are, that it's probably useful to know a little more about. So when news does happen, maybe you've seen my show so you know who we're talking about.
1: By being a memoirist and not a field reporter, Bourdain was able to find himself in regions of the world most of us don't take the time to think about. When's the last time you mulled over the struggles of the Namibian people, or folks in the Congo? But nevertheless, that's where he went. By sitting at the tables of people across the world, he gave us windows into their world. Pictures of everyday life in countries the majority of us will never even consider setting foot. So that now, when we hear about a bombing in Libya, or see a hurricane approaching Cuba, we think of the folks we saw at his table kind people who cooked for him, sheltered him, treated him like one of their own. He taught us not to be afraid of the other. He taught us how painful it is to put yourself in someone else's shoes. But he also showed us how vulnerable that is, and how it's worth the pain.
3: To think about, much less empathize, with somebody who comes from five generations of coal miners in a place that looks like this, is to our enduring shame unthinkable. Why can't these coal miners get retrained, maybe put up solar panels for a living? Why would these conservative, deeply religious people vote for a thrice-married billionaire New Yorker? Well, I went to West Virginia, and you know what? Screw you. Here in the heart of every belief system I've ever mocked or fought against, I was welcomed with open arms by everyone. I found a place both heartbreaking and beautiful a place that symbolizes and contains everything wrong and everything wonderful and hopeful about America.
1: I found out about his death when Catherine texted me at 8 in the morning. When I learned that it was Eric, his best friend, that found him, it broke me. But when I scanned social media and saw that just about everyone I knew from every walk of life in every industry, religion, denomination, and political party were singing his praises and lamenting his early passing, it brought a strange comfort. Everyone in the food industry wanted to be Anthony Bourdain. They wanted his lifestyle, his freedom, his gravitas, his compassion. Everyone wanted it but him. He didn't pretend to be a saint. He burned through two marriages, both ruined by affairs. He was a recovered heroin addict, but he was as blue-collar as they came. He wasn't some hotshot chef. He was just a dude. He was just one of the boys on the line at the bistro. And he worked his way up from dishwasher to a chef and eventually to an award-winning writer through discipline and tenacity. The best part about the social media storm that erupted after his passing were the pictures. Most were press photos as I scrolled through my Instagram timeline. But at least half of the ones in my feed were of times my friends and colleagues had spent with him. Dinners, street encounters, book readings. For anyone who has worked in a restaurant, you could tell as soon as you heard him speak that he was one of us. And he showed us that what we did meant something, even if it was just a shitty brunch shift. I was always disappointed to listen to interviews with Bourdain because no one ever asked the right questions. Even fresh air stooped so low as to ask him about eating unwashed warthog rectum, losing the purpose of why he ate it. He wasn't there to eat that organ. He was there to learn about those people. It wasn't bizarre foods. Watch me eat this live scorpion. It was sitting at the table of strangers to learn more about their lives, where they come from, and where they're going. He was a student of the world, and he shared with us what he learned. I thought he'd always be around. I was looking forward to his last few seasons of the show before he'd retired to Vietnam as he'd always said he wanted to do. I was looking forward to his next book and hoping he'd pen another travel memoir or maybe another graphic novel. Because right now in this world, we need his voice. We need his patience. Bourdain spent his career teaching us not to be scared of our neighbor, but instead to sit down with them and get to know them. To give them time and space to tell their stories. Or, as he said, maybe that's enlightenment enough to know that there is no final resting place of the mind, no moment of smug clarity. Perhaps wisdom is realizing how small I am and unwise, and how far I have yet to go. We'll miss you, Tony.
0: You found the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour, and you just heard a brand new one from Asheville's own Nest Egg called Denied Doctrine from their album Nothingness is Not a Curse.
1: And before that was Radiohead with Present Tenth. One of the things we aim to do here at Dirty Spoon is find voices from all over the country that shed light on hotbeds of American culture and to take a look at how things are evolving there. Author Abigail Schaefer is a professor of creative writing at UMKC in Kansas City, but her roots stretch it a little further south. Born and raised in the Ozarks, her novel Children of the Country was published in 2016 and tells the stories of hard scrabble life in the hills of Arkansas and families struggling to keep food on the table. Over the course of her career, she has seen rural and urban pockets of blue-collar society throughout the South and Midwest, And she's seen some lines connecting the dots on that map, even between her current home in Kansas City and her hometown in Little Rock. Catherine caught up with her a couple of weeks ago, and here's what she had to say.
4: One of the aspects I loved about your piece is the emphasis on how food connects people to a specific place. I mean, that's what this whole piece is really about, how Arkansas connects people to its uniquely blended environment and how it keeps people within the state connected together. I mean, that's really cool. So since moving away from Little Rock, have you ever been to a place that you feel connected to to its environment as strongly as Arkansas does?
5: Well, I love what I see going on in Arkansas. and what's interesting is that I would say that um, where I live right now, I live in Kansas City and I would say that Kansas City is undergoing and has been undergoing a kind of quiet and parallel revolution to a lot of what I see in Arkansas. Kansas City is a vibrant city, um, but we're in the Midwest, so we're not really gonna be totally in your face and blagging about it, but there's a lot going on in terms of food here. There is a huge draw to artisanal meats and cheeses, and farmer's markets are pretty much standard and basically mainstream. I mean, I live within walking distance of two organic farmer's markets, and the cool thing about it is they're accessible and affordable for everyone. And so at the same time, though, we also have more specifically an enormous cultural and ethnic diversity, and that definitely shapes the food cultures and um, what's available here in the city and what um, kind of shapes the culture for what it is.
4: And then is there a particular food or dish that you have a really strong affinity with? You
5: know what? I cannot commit to a particular region of the world. And so I'm gonna go really general here and say I a vegetarian. Um, my favorite thing to make is just classic old school hummus, like with, you know, starting with dry chickpeas and plenty of garlic and olive oil and homemade tahini, just doing it the, you know, totally the traditional way. Um, I make my own bread too and um pretty much anything that involves a lemon I'm in. And um but I'm really back on the vegetarian thing. I'm not a strict vegetarian nor by any means strictly plant based, but my palate and my choices are um heaviest you know on plants and it's a preference thing and a palate And it's the experience of the food and kind of like what we've been talking about, like the connecting with the culture and the community. And, but it's also, you know, the way I feel, only way I feel I could combat concerns I see with like big food in general. And what I mean is like, you know, concerns I have with the industrial food complex and like what it does when it wreaks, you know, the havoc it's wreaking on the environment and with health concerns I see with like processed food and things like that. So meaning strongly vegetarian is a way for me to not only eat what I enjoy and eat what tastes right and for the experience of it, but it's also sort of a way to address these concerns that I, I identify. So I guess the way You know, um, all art is political, and so is good food. I don't know.
4: (laughs) All art is political, and so is good food. That is the perfect way to wrap this up. So thank you so much, Abby, for uh, your amazing piece on, um, on Arkansas and on the Little Rock food scene. And thank you so much for joining me today on the radio.
5: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate the opportunity. It's been a lot of fun.
1: That was Abigail Schaefer chatting with our own Catherine Campbell. And here's local poet and personality Barbie Angel reading Field Bees for All Eternity, a story by Abby Schaefer, pinned for us here at the Dirty Spoon Radio Hour.
6: I haven't lived in Little Rock, Arkansas for nearly seven years, nearly a decade. So you might be asking, why go there now? I'm a gal of principles, you see, and one of my main principles is this. I don't eat crawfish po-boys anywhere but Maddie's Place in Little Rock. Sorry, Louisiana. Enter the owner of Maddie's Place, Chef Brian Deloney, one of Little Rock's own. He earned his formidable chops at the CIA in New York before landing a decade's worth of serious gigs as executive sous-chef for Emeril Legacy at NOLA and then Delmonico's at the Venetian in Las Vegas. The fair at Maddie's Place reflects Delaney's formal culinary training and New Orleans' influence. But Delaney owns it in a way that's purely Arkansas and purely unique. Case in point. When asked what he'd serve two of my favorite folks, Queen Elizabeth II and Jack White, he says, Fried green tomatoes with crab meat remoulade and crystal gastric to start. For the queen, shrimp and smoked cheddar grits with andouille reduction. And for Jack, the buttermilk fried chicken breast with mac and cheese and slow-cooked greens. They can both finish it off with bread pudding and rum sauce. And then there's South On, Main's chef bard, Matt Bell, who unites the soul-deep spokes of food, regionality, and history with his passion for local and regional foodways. There's an entire freezer at South On, Main dedicated to Crowder Peas, about which he proclaims with infectious joy, Field Peas, Field Peas for all eternity. Throughout my amazing conversation with my two old friends, what struck me most about Little Rock's food culture is that a strong sense of adaptation and simply being Arkansan are truly the umami drivers of the entire food scene. Both Delaney and Bell emphasize that for anything to fly, for anything to be truly embraced, it must have a distinctly regional connection. Delaney says, Arkansas food is genuinely Southern. I like taking old recipes and adapting them to new ways of cooking. A lot of times it's simply to employ a little healthier method. Delaney's seared catfish with slow cooked greens, black eyed peas, and Creole tomato glaze illustrate the marriage of old school and clean modern through culinary technique. Delaney also points to the close connection between chefs and farmers. We've got some of the best farming in the region. Many farmers cater to us chefs, which is really, really cool, and they will essentially grow what we ask them to. The choices are endless. You can't talk Arkansas food without talking about the people eating it. To get to the core and essence of Arkansas cooking, you have to wrestle out the intrinsic nature of what it means to be Arkansan. Back in the day, en route to the Alamo, Davy Crockett opined, If I could rest anywhere... It would be in Arkansas, where men are of the real half-horse, half-alligator breed. Both Delaney and Bell cycle back to the human connection, the telling of story and the shared history of the people as a defining element. Everyone knows everyone, and I see it on a daily basis, Delaney observes, the lunch crowd mingling, networking, as they've always done. Creating new visions and directions in Arkansas cooking is important. Bell notes, we sit in a geographically interesting position, fringing the Midwest and Texas, for example, so we have these influences not seen so much in other regions of the South. In fact, one characteristic of the Arkansas food scene is its adaptation and integration of myriad influences and styles. In addition to the many complex faces of Southern cooking inherent to the Arkansas culinary scene, including high country, Appalachia-style mountain cooking, and a long and deep Delta Cajun tradition, authentic regional Mexican cooking, reflective of the changing demographics in Arkansas, has begun to influence Little Rock's culinary experience. Delani explains, most of the chefs around here are taking on different cultures and creating diverse menus. As Bell says, Arkansas is an awesome cornucopia of styles and identities. Arkansas history is not the stereotypical anti-bellum hee-haw often glorified in many depictions of the South. Yes, there was big money and there is big money. The third largest trading floor in the country is located in Little Rock. But poverty and hard scrabble getting by frame the Arkansas identity for many folks. Slavery and the subsequent indefensible history of civil rights atrocities and a violent, ugly, and omnipresent white resistance to desegregation cannot be ignored either. The contrast between the powerful and wealthy few and the rest of the folks is often stark. The idea here is that Little Rock specifically, and... Arkansas more broadly, is a conglomeration of cultures that cannot be struck from the narrative, but is instead a defining and complexly evolving characteristic. Bell breaks it down. Here's the thing. Arkansas has always taken in, sometimes amicably and sometimes not, an influx of all kinds of culture and ethnic influences. The transition and adaptation has rarely been that smooth, but in the South, in Arkansas specifically, begrudging acceptance and fierce loyalty are inherent characteristics of Arkansas food culture and heritage in general. There's a really interesting lineage tracing back to slavery, and it's a conversation that must be had, even if it makes people uncomfortable. You take a dish like stewed tomatoes and okra, and there's an automatic heritage connection for many Arkansans, a deep-rooted cultural connection and draw a longing for home and roots. It's an Arkansas dish. Well, you take that same dish, maybe tweak the spices a bit, and a kid living in West Africa is eating it all the time and thinking it's West African. Having a conversation that acknowledges that connection, it's the same, and guess where it actually came from? And how so much of what we associate with Southern cooking is due to the slave trade, well, some people get uncomfortable but we have to talk about it because it's part of us in the south in arkansas in particular there's a trait that even if something is forced on the culture given enough time and appreciation it becomes part of the story so this painful discussion becomes part of the story and you get to one of the coolest things about arkansas food culture food levels the playing field you're at a barbecue or tamale stand in the delta And no one's thinking about race, they're just thinking about the food. It's the bravery therein, the reckoning of a painful past that often defines the character of the people, place, and food. When I asked Delani what he'd bring if he was stranded on a desert island, he replied, Doritos and Gatorade, don't judge. Sums it up, it's the high and the low. It's the crystal gastrique and the sack of Doritos jacked. It's the infusion of pain and loyalty, of making do and refined opulence. Part of the food culture is the shared experience of connecting the people to the place. When I think of Arkansas food, I also think of old school Crescent Dragon Wagon, I think of the amazing farmers and chefs and bartenders that I call my friends. I think of the passion and hospitality of the people I knew while I had the privilege of calling Arkansas my home. I think of the amazing climate, pots of cilantro on the patio all year round. I think of three-story tall crepe myrtles, rambling kudzu, the thick heat of Delta Country. Rainy season gully washers so intense, a primary character of my first novel was born from watching sheets of endless early summer rain. Of course, there's a lot to get pissed off about, especially old Bubba and the narrow-minded prejudice and oppression that continue to influence current politics and worldviews. But there are also two-lane roads littered with crawfish shells tossed by slicked-up city cats attending the annual crawfish festivals in Dermot or Arkadelphia or Hot Springs. To sit on porches and nod hay at the stream of other city transplants, escorting family members through crumbling streets to the heart of fading hometowns. There are Arkansas black apples, purple whole peas, catfish, the flashing trout and lean game of the Washita's and Ozark ranges of the north. There's also the Arkansas basmati and fat ducks of the wide flatlands of the south and east, and the clear streams and mist over the water. As Crockett said, such as nowhere else on the face of this universal earth. When asked what he would serve the Queen and Jack, Bell paused a mere beat. I'd serve them both the same thing, our catfish, which is delicate and refined because it's not fried, our three-bean salad with sorghum and sherry vinegar, and grit sticks using grits from Hannah Farms in Luxora. All local, delicate, and refined for a queen, yet our take on trash cooking, which is totally rock and roll, right? Absolutely.
1: I recently spent a couple months working on a story for the Mountain Express about sustainability in the restaurant industry and what it really means. Sure, a restaurant can have sustainable practices towards the earth, but how is that sustainable to its own neighborhood, its workforce? Does it make it sustainable for the family that owns it? Asheville is dominated by farm-to-table restaurants that crank out food that is, really, in all honesty, a little pricey for the folks that pay the rent here. I really wanted to dive into the idea of what it costs a restaurant to run a reliably sustainable menu and what that might indicate for the consumer. In the course of that story, I had a particularly poignant conversation with one of the best chefs in town, Josiah Magahi, who, along with his wife Shannon, runs what might be my favorite restaurant in Asheville, Vivian, in the River Arts District. We talked about how the restaurant scene has evolved, particularly when it comes to the normalization of farm-to-table cuisine and what that means for the everyday Joe that walks in the door wanting a meal. And it raised a lot of tough questions. Check out Express for the full story, but here's a quick cut of Josiah and I mulling over the idea of what fine dining's place is in the culinary world and that difficult line where craftsmanship and affordability meet. I guess that's the the question I know I have readers that are asking which is like if it makes it more expensive for the customer why do it?
7: Hmm. I mean I'll I'll approach that. I won't speak for everybody because I just can't. Of I'll course. approach that from an individual. You only speak for I do it because I do it because it's a, it's a conscience thing yeah. it's, a, it's also a quality thing <laughs> like, yeah. like I really you can tell the quality difference and for me I'll go work in a shoe factory before I have to go do something like that that's not the reason why I'm doing this you know? right. I'm not going to squash my, my creativity and my my conscience for cheap food yeah that makes sense
1: yeah um, yeah I think that's the thing that. why is, do it
7: why do anything yeah know? like why why not why write about what you want to write about instead of just go write like singles advertisements and get paid right just to do that yeah why do you do what you, you I'd know? be
1: making a lot more money if well, I was writing ad copy right now
7: exactly yeah so why anything yeah. because you care enough because you're passionate enough and how do you explain that ask Plato you know <laughs> you know what I mean I don't know because because I like to sleep even though I don't get much sleep but the sleep I do get I'd like to have at least the feeling <laughs> that <are> I can <laughs> you know that I can it would keep me up all night yeah it would it would keep me up all night and I would I would feel like my soul is turning gray and my heart's turning to stone and then yeah I'd go work at a shoe factory and make make a pension at six sixty and what aspect would tear you up the most about that? What's the... The quality. Yeah. The quality of the food and knowing what is going onto a plate and that conscience. Knowing what you're missing out on. And knowing what I'm missing out on and also knowing what people are ingesting into their bodies. Granted, I don't necessarily ingest all the greatest things, but (laughs) a lot of of things I shouldn't. (laughs) 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 But, you know, it's... got to think about it like, all right, you're going to feed your family. Like, you're going to try to feed your family the best thing that you can afford to feed them. And that's what you should be doing. Right. And you should also be taking that same approach when you are cooking for people and expecting them to buy your food. Yeah. You want to be able to say at the end of the day, I have done the best job I can do to give you the best quality food that I can give you. you know? Yeah. And that's, you, know, you can kind of wrap your night up knowing that.
1: Right. You know? Um, you well, know? it's the same with any... We have people to Any pay, for. you know... Anything that you're doing that is a craft that's based on quality, where people are paying for quality and paying for um, attention to detail, is going to be more expensive. It is. You know, that's why handmade jewelry is more expensive than the shit you buy at Urban Outfitters.
7: Why do you think people um, don't understand that? Uh, I think
1: because they don't see what goes into it. Okay. And, I, I mean, I did a piece on Penland a while back, and just seeing, like, the amount of detail that goes into those jewelers' work, or into those handmade knives, or into those crazy lock boxes that the, these metal smiths are making. Like, it's yeah. an insane amount of work. And it justifies the $1,000 price points on those items. And I think that that's something that is, it automatically makes that thing pretentious, but I think that we've demonized the, t- the term pretentious in a way that's really stupid because all pretension means is that you under- have an understanding of the difficulty and
6: of time
1: every... that d- it takes to make something quality. Right. And I think especially when it comes to food, that becomes a very tricky subject because
7: Maybe that should be the title we're under- adding
1: the nutrition. <laughs> right. <laughs> when it comes to food, that makes it becomes a much trickier subject because we are adding people's but food is what keeps us alive. Yeah. So we're literally adding a price tag to livelihood. Yep. And.
7: No, you're absolutely correct.
1: When it comes to farm to table, that makes this issue much, much trickier because the cheaper places to eat right now are the most unhealthy ones. And that's a really, really scary thing. Um, because that means that people that are of lower income don't have access to
7: as high a quality of food. It's an, extremely, it's an extremely scary thing. Uh-huh.
1: That was Josiah Magahi and I chatting for a story I've been working on for the Mountain Express. You can find that article about restaurant sustainability in the upcoming June 20th issue of the Express. Dirty Spoon also plans to publish a series of podcasts featuring interviews with chefs and farmers revolving around this very subject. Uh.
8: With inverted tongue From whence does fulfillment come? When I expel From this mortal shell We're at death a living
1: dirty spoon radio hour is a production of dirty spoon media copyright 2018
0: all the text from our stories is available on our website dirty-spoon.com the incredible art on that page is by katrin doza and corinne Pease.
1: music in this episode by peter broderick jamie cato dave randall levon mencian mike Rowe, and paul herm the album leaf radiohead nest egg rebirth brass band Daniel Lanois, Slow Dive, The Dust Brothers, and Moses Sumney. Catherine Campbell is our editor-at-large, handles our website, marketing, and sources our stories.
0: Jonathan Ammons is our editor-in-chief and handles the music selection, production, recording, audio editing, and writes some of the original music. Tune in next month for more stories, music, and conversations from the people who shape what we consume.
1: This is
8: 103.7 WPVMLP, Asheville.